It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the president who thinks government is a reality TV show, Donald Trump. I'm Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent, stepping in for today's show. On Tuesday, at primetime, Donald Trump introduced the country and the world to his pick for the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch. Unable to resist the show, Trump teased suspense. He had two possible picks for the court, and you would have to tune in to find out the winner. It was a spectacle. The latest episode in a bizarre and extremely high-stakes reality TV show that we call The Presidency. But here we are. And as for Gorsuch, he is a judge on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, an almost traditional choice for the bench, and a choice met with wide praise and approval from Republican lawmakers and conservative activists. But that patina of normality obscures the political turmoil that surrounds his nomination. After all, it comes nearly a year after President Obama nominated Merrick Garland to the high court, nearly a year after Republicans made an unprecedented blockade of the Supreme Court refusing to hear Garland or hold a vote on him. To many observers, liberals or otherwise, this is a stolen Supreme Court seat, one which rightfully belongs to Merrick Garland, which means that for however much Gorsuch is qualified, he won't have an easy time in the Senate. Our guest today is Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's senior legal correspondent. We'll discuss this nomination and the politics of the moment and the tough dilemma Democrats find themselves in, facing off against a qualified but still controversial nominee. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. I'm on the line with Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's senior legal correspondent. Hey, Dahlia. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, Jamal. So let's just get right down to, uh, I guess, this issue here. Last night, during a primetime event, President Trump nominated uh, Neil Gorsuch for the Supreme Court. And I, I got to be honest, I don't really know much about this guy. So could you sort of start out by describing him a little? Like, where where, did he, where has he been? Where did he serve previously? And where does he kind of fall uh, in terms of judicial ideology? Uh, sure. Uh, I, I have to tell you that my instinct is just to just talk about Merrick Garland again. I feel like <laughs> we didn't get to have that hearing. But um, caveat that we're now talking about Neil Gorsuch. Uh, he comes off the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, 
He lives in Colorado. His mom was the head of the EPA under Reagan and I think resigned under a cloud. And I think the most probably notable thing about Neil Gorsuch, in addition to the fact that he is truly well-liked, you're not going to find anyone to say anything. You know, he is an incredibly warm smart, I would go so far as to say brilliant jurist, I think that he is very much in the model of Antonin Scalia, and he has been at pains in his life to say that Scalia is his judicial hero. So I think that um, where he differs from Scalia isn't so much in doctrine, but in temperament. And Gorsuch is not a bomb thrower. He's not somebody who um, picks fights. He is in the manner of Scalia, one of the really most brilliant writers, judicial writers on the appeals court bench. So he's extremely conservative, but without the sort of snark and the sharp elbows of Scalia. I think that's probably the fairest characterization I can give. Is there anything about him that you think liberals and Democrats would like? Let's say he's on the bench. Is there anything that they can rest assured that he he will, you know, try to dismantle or try to protect? Well, you know, interestingly, I would say that given that Donald Trump, as I recall, made two explicit doctrinal pledges about his pick, Neil Gorsuch is actually not written directly on either of them, which is fascinating, right? So Trump promised us somebody who was expressly going to overturn Roe. We have not seen um, doctrinally from Gorsuch writing directly on Roe or whether Roe is good law. And we can talk in a minute about what he has done uh, on reproductive rights. But abortion, uh, we don't have a huge record. And then guns, the same. We have, you know, some indication that he believes in the individual right to bear arms, but he doesn't have a blockbuster gun piece that, for instance, um, Tom Hardiman, who was the other finalist in last night's beauty contest <laughs> from the Third Circuit, has a really robust and I think very extreme, probably more extreme than the current doctrine view of gun rights, that's not Gorsuch. So in a strange way, I think what liberals could look to is what does it mean that Trump pledged that he had somebody who was hard and fast on these two issues and we don't have much of a record. Now we have a little bit of a a record on Gorsuch because he's weighed in heavily on the Hobby Lobby case, right? That has to do with the contraception uh, mandate in uh, the Affordable Care Act. And Gorsuch took a strong position more than once in the cases that said, no, no, religious dissenters who feel that they are burdened religiously by um, affording contraception to their workers have a uh, an opt-out that they cannot be forced to provide birth control to their workers. So he has strongly shown solicitude uh, for the religious claimants in those cases. We know where he is on that. We also know, and this might be relevant to abortion, that the area that he has done most of his study intellectually, and he's written a book on, is end-of-life decisions, physician-assisted suicide, and he talks there very pointedly about the sanctity of life. And Ed Wellen at the National Review, who's one of the kind of most conservative court watchers in the country, says that is absolutely a template for the analysis he will apply to Roe. Just the third thing I would say is that there's some reason to believe that on criminal justice, he will not be as extreme as some of the conservatives that have come before him, that he's shown uh, an ability to uh, slightly modulate some of the really strong 
anti-prisoner uh, and anti-defendant uh, doctrine in the court. So basically, he, he seems about what you would expect from almost a typical uh, Republican president nominating a Supreme Court judge. I think that's right. And I think that's noteworthy, Jamal, that, you know, you, you fully expected, and I was saying this time yesterday, uh, that I fully expected Trump to put up, you know, a really, you know, almost nihilistic, someone along the, the model of the folks he's put up to, you know, head education and other departments that want to blow up the department. I fully expected Trump to put up someone who was very much in that mold, who was really, you know, there to, to pick fights. And, and this is not Gorsuch. It's not Gorsuch by appearance and not by temperament. And so what really he's done, I think, is exactly in imitation of what Obama did, which is put up somebody who is not terribly outside the mainstream. He's certainly, I think, very conservative, but I don't think he is Bork, and said, I'm not going to make this person the issue. My nominee is not the issue. The issue is this is our seat. So I think that gets to um, one of the, the big political disputes here, issues here, and that you mentioned when we started, um, which is that for a year after during President Obama's final term, uh, the Republicans in the Senate uh, essentially blockaded uh, the seat on the Supreme Court left vacant by Scalia's death and did it with the express purpose of uh, pretty much this outcome, that it, they would hopefully win the presidential election. And you know, I, I tend to think that that decision to blockade the seat helped unify conservatives behind the nominee, uh, Donald Trump, and that then they would have the opportunity to fill that seat with someone like Scalia. And so uh, from what I can tell, just sort of reading you know, op-eds from liberal columnists, uh, looking at what Democratic activists and, and Democratic uh, sort of staffer types are saying on Twitter, there's a real sense, there's real, it seems to be a real feeling among Democrats that the Democratic Party should kind of respond in the same way. And and the argument that I, I think the, the sophisticated argument is that the blockade of the Supreme Court during Obama's last year in office was a kind of profound violation of the norms of uh, court nominations and that Democrats are under no, under no obligation to consider Gorsuch regardless of how mainstream he is, not because, not because he is a bad nominee, but because the process itself was illegitimate. I think that's right. And I think it's why I'm very reluctant, uh, you know, to talk about Gorsuch's record and to probe deeply, you know, the merits of his nomination, because that was not an action that the other side took with respect to Garland. Uh, they just said, and in fact, I think it's worth remembering that people like Orrin Hatch, who came out against Garland, had said incredibly laudatory things about him in the past. And so the way they made it not about Garland, uh, and by the way, insulted and shamed Garland and Obama, but they did that by just trying to make a sort of structural argument about, we're not going to talk about the nominee, we're just going to talk about the seat, and it's our seat, because Obama's not really the president. And I think that you know, you're already seeing a real rift among Senate Democrats because some have come out, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Jeff Merkley, you know, have come out saying, no, I'm not going to do a deep dive on this person and their merits because it's not their seat. And other Senate Democrats saying, well, I'm going to give him a hearing, you know, at least let's let's show him the courtesy that was not 
shown to Garland. And so I think in the end, and I suspect we had this conversation almost a year ago, uh, you and I, when the seat was initially taken from Obama, you know, the act of saying, well, you know, we're going to do better because these norms matter. And so we're going to treat Gorsuch with the dignity and respect that a jurist of his stature deserves is it looks like it's taking the high road. It is taking the high road. It is very much in keeping with, I think, the Democrats' desire to be reasonable and respectful of norms. But boy, oh boy, when the shoe is on the other foot, that's not what happened. And it is very, very difficult, I think, for Senate Democrats who are today saying, look, he's not a bad guy. We could have gotten a nut job. Let's just, you know, and the seat was Scalia's anyway. It's not a net loss to the court. Let's get along and be reasonable and keep our powder dry for another day. And I think that that is certainly a legitimate argument. But the one thing I would add to this is that, and the New York Times does some good reporting on this, this isn't just about the Scalia seat. This is about the Kennedy seat, and this is about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. And there are three justices on the court above the age of 78. And to suggest that, well, we're going to be reasonable now because it's only Scalia's seat, there's no net change at the court, is not to be entirely cognizant of what's coming down the pike. Right. And I do think this is just me sort of thinking about institutional norms and how they operate, that you do, we do, we do seem to be appro- approaching a point or at a point where it's one thing to want to preserve norms, but norms by definition aren't one-sided, that they have to have buy-in from both ends. And if the Republican Party has decided that it is no longer under any obligation to consider Supreme Court nominees from Democrats, then um, I think I think that does call into question whether or not Democrats should be should behave as a normal political party, given that this isn't really a normal political situation. Not only would I agree, but I think I would go one further, and this is what I tried to write last night. I think that to look at this Supreme Court seat in a siloed way and to say this is just about, you know, replacing uh, Scalia after almost a year's vacancy on the Supreme Court is, I think, to disserve the larger conversation that we should be having about constitutional norms and the rule of law and Trump's treatment of the judicial branch over the campaign. In other words, this is not an isolated moment where we can say, oh, look, Trump did something normal, therefore we should treat it normally. I think this is a part of a long progression that started when Trump absolutely disparaged Judge Gonzalo Curiel based on his race and has continued on right down to his disparagement of the acting attorney general this week and his complete disparagement of the Constitution and the role it plays in our democracy. This is not another thing. Part of the conversation about how this president thinks about norms and respect and how he thinks about the Constitution and checks and balances has to play out in this conversation around this nomination. And so I think it has to be a broader conversation than just, hey, he picked a not very bad guy. I think it has to be a conversation about what is the role of the judicial branch having been disparaged and in many, many ways belittled in the past not only, you know, year, but I would say in the past week in terms of violations of court orders around the country with relation to the immigration ban. 
how does that fit into this conversation? And how does the response on the part of Democrats sweep in that conversation and not just have an isolated conversation about the Senate Judiciary Committee this week? I have been talking to Slate's Dahlia Lithwick. Uh, Dahlia, thank you for joining me on the show today. Thank you for having me. And we are done for today. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Someone gave Jacob Weisberg a rose and filmed it for television, so I guess he runs this joint now. I'm Jamel Bowie, broadcasting from deep within the swamp. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.